The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Each business is unique and operated individually of others in the same industry. What they have in common is the potential path to success. Welcome to The Second Stage with your hosts, Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson. In today's program, we'll address the obstacles that many businesses find on that path to success and discuss what entrepreneurs and their businesses are doing to stay ahead of the curve. Now, here's Brendan Anderson and Jeffrey Cadlick. Welcome, welcome, welcome to The Second Stage. This is Brendan Anderson. Uh, Jeff Cadlick is is, uh, out on assignment, uh, hitting some uh, capital raising uh, events. Uh, we are uh, um, the so show today is uh, about pitch anything method with uh, Oren Clef. Uh, we are excited to welcome the investment banker, author of Pitch Anything: An Innovative Method for Presenting, Persuading, and Winning the Deal. Uh, Mr. Clef, um, uh, coming to the second stage, uh, he will also discuss um, his strong methodology and why establishing a high status position matters, and as a leader or business owner pitching a potential investor or a large client. Join us to learn the most common pitch flaws and how to gain fame and control. Um, Don't be afraid to make the buyer qualify him or herself back to you. Be direct. Have the confidence to ask why you should be doing business together and create curiosity to make the buyer listen. Um, Oren, thank you uh, so much for, uh, for joining us in the second stage. Yeah, well, I appreciate the invitation, and here we are. Let's see what we can make out of our time together today. I think that is just sort of the entrepreneurial message, right? I got eight to ten hours today to get stuff done. I got to get as much activity done in as short a period of time as possible because, uh, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, there's no one to back you up. There's no corporate, uh, you know, HR department. There's no um, uh, support plan. You have to do things that all rolls to you and you have to know how to pitch and sell and operate and close and recruit and do all those things. It's a, it's a long, hard day as an entrepreneur, but the benefits are well worth it. So good conversation. Well, I, I for, the, for the listeners, I, I uh, have watched a lot of the videos of you online. I've uh, read the book and uh, I can promise you that uh, we have made, or I personally have made every single mistake that you have mentioned in your book and in your, and in your, uh, the videos and on your website. So uh, I feel like uh, every, well, as, as you were walking through every scenario, I'm like, yeah, I remember that. I remember that. So um, if, if anybody want to, we would like to, uh, to uh, see some of the the website is uh, www.pitchanything.com, and uh, you can uh, follow or, um, Oren on Twitter at, at pitchanything. So, Oren, I obviously your time's valuable. Uh, it's wonderful. The um, maybe maybe jump into the definition of, of pitching versus selling. I know uh, it's a it's a it's a big part of uh, of your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple different angles to come in here. I'll answer it politically with, it, uh, you know, the way you guys do it. You ask, you ask a question, and they don't even answer it. But, uh, I mean, just, you know, when I listen to a radio show, and they go, here's an author, wrote a book. Like, you know, I groan a little bit because 
people who don't have things to do write books. It's incredibly time-consuming you know, process to write a book. You almost can't have a job while you're doing it. But Pitch Anything is about my experiences. I mean, I have probably give, you know, during the time that I wrote it, 5,000 pitches a year, right? And so and not only do I give them, but I also see them. You start to see the recurring errors that happen in pitches. And I think to your point, Brennan, is that people get confused between selling and pitching. And pitching is sort of one lick of the bullet. Right? You, you're, you're crouched in the grass. Your target you know, creeps out in front of you. Your spotter clicks the dial. He says go. You know, just like in the movies, you very, very carefully have prepared the bullet. You've got it in the chamber. You don't get repeat shots. When you're selling, you know, you call on a customer and you say, hey, would you like more ball bearings? Would you like more paper? Would you like more, um, uh, you know, services? And they go, ah, you know, not this month. Come back next month. Let's take a look at your service or your product and see what you have. When you pitch, it is typically a one-shot presentation to get somebody to understand what you have, to become curious about it, to become intrigued about you and your company and what you have, and then eventually to flip over into wanting what it is that you're offering. That's what a pitch is characterized by. Selling is a little bit you know, more offering a service that um, uh, comes around repeatedly. So those, those are two big differences. So you've got to prepare a lot more for a pitch. So, so be very specific. Let's say you're building a development or you want your, uh, you're starting a car dealership or you're going to fund a startup, an app, right? And you go to, uh, let's just, just to say you're building a development. You go to Bank of America or Wells Fargo or the kind of people who fund your know, developments in your area and you go, hey, listen, I need $40 million. I'm going to provide so much equity. This is the debt I need from you guys. And they say, no, doesn't work for us. The underwriting isn't right. Right. They don't, right? And you call them next month. You say, I'd like to come back and you know, show it to you a little different way. And they'll say, what did you not understand about no? Like, it's not for us. Mm-hmm. So when you go to give a pitch, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, and I'm not saying you know, in all situations it's a one, but imagine going for venture capital, right? You have an app. You go to Sequoia. You go to True Ventures. You go to Kleiner Perkins. You go to any of 300 NEA uh, and Dreesen, you know, you go to any of 350 venture firms up Silicon Valley. You pitch the deal, and they go, look, it's not for us. It's a pass for these reasons. And you call them next week, next month, next year, and they go, how are you confused? We said no. <laughs> That's a pitch. So anyway, um, it, it's just you know, it's worth three or four minutes to understand that when you get into these, and so when we go to give a pitch, maybe this is the parallel to it. The reason pitch anything is so specific about what to do when is we might uh, prepare for three months to go to five meetings. So we care in each of those meetings what happens at the beginning for the first 30 seconds, the first three minutes, the first five minutes. At minute 20, we know exactly where we want to be and what we need to be doing because we don't have a lot of these to go to, and they're so important because they involve 10, 20, 30, 40 million dollars. And the things you learn at 40 million dollars of stakes apply to ten dollars, a hundred dollars, ten thousand dollars, fifteen thousand dollars. I think that's what's so cool about uh, the Pitch is it's based on the human condition. It's not based on the product or the size of the deal. So once you understand what works at ten dollars, you work, you understand what works at forty thousand dollars. You understand what works at forty million dollars. It's all based on the human response to telling people what it is you have, 
why they should invest money with you or buy from you. So anyway, Brennan, I, I, I took over. Now you take over your own show. And tell me no, what no, you do no. It. I like uh, I'm, <laughs> it's it's all good. I uh, there's a lot of good stuff. I got to get you to uh, to say much better than I can. Hey, obviously, Orrin, you, you put a lot of thought into to how this this works and in in uh, do a great job outlining it in the book. Maybe talk about your background and and, and kind of how you thought about looking into this, and then um, and then kind of what what was your aha moment when you said, "Holy crap, there is something to thinking all this through." And my job was to go out and raise the equity, right, or the the, the risk capital for the deal. And I had a very, very short window of time to do it. So I have to go out and raise $4 million, $8 million, $3 million, $7 million in about 35 days. One guy raising $35 million from 22 different people in 35 days is a very high bar, right? But if we did it successfully, we made a lot of money. And if we didn't do it, we'd lose a lot of money. So uh, the, the guy I worked with is a natural, and he was able to do this Right, and he sort of transferred his skills to me. And if he was alongside me, I'd be able to do it. And then if he left my side, I'd do the exact same thing, and it wouldn't work. Sometimes, many times. So I, I don't think because I'm doing the exact same thing I do when he's by my side, but he's not there, and then it, it's not working. So I, there's invisible forces working in these pitches that he didn't understand. And so then that was my aha moment in saying, it's not the words you're saying, right? It's not the, um, it's not the offering. It's not the pricing. There's something going on here. There's some kind of control mechanism that I can't see that he's using. I'm not. And that began my investigation to what's really happening in meetings where you're asking people for money. Did he know what he was doing or did, or, or, or I mean, did, was he, had he thought that through or did you kind of go back right, and forgot right. How he do it? So how that's do it. the function of naturals, right? They don't know what they're doing; they just do it, uh, and so they can't describe to you. They just go, "Just do it this way," and you copy them. You know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, and so naturals don't understand the underlying. You know, they haven't taken the time to sort of dig into the science of what they're doing, uh, but but they can do it. So no, he was not able to describe it. It wasn't until I really sat down and tried to you know break this down bit by bit that I started to understand it. And then I started to do it correctly, and I would, you know, you could argue today I'm way better than he ever was. Um, <laughs> I, I actually understand the blueprint, the method, underlying controlling forces, and he just goes out and wings it. All right, so let's talk. So you, you stopped and you said, let's figure out how the brain works. So what, how, did you, how did you do that, and what did you figure out? Yeah, so, I mean, if you read the book, uh, simply, you know, we all think about the mind. We think about our mind as where information just turns around, sort of like maybe a washing machine, right? You put stuff in there, you turn it on, and it just cycles, and eventually stuff gets, you know, the mind is just this massive machine that crunches information and emotions and um, visual images and auditory inputs and things. But when you really get into it, the mind is a mechanical structure that, takes chemical inputs and it processes them through different regions and those regions of the mind do different things. And you begin to understand that, you say, okay, I don't look at the mind as, psych- as a psychological uh, um, input response mechanism, right? I yell at you, you get mad. That's sort of the psychology model, right? I take something away from you uh, and you want it back. That's psychology. When I started talking to cognitive psychologists, 
cognitive psychologists aren't so concerned about what your emotions you're feeling, but they are concerned about how information flows through the mind. So what we learned is, what they showed me is that when you are talking, when you are explaining the product you have, when you meet somebody, when you walk into a room and begin to pitch what it is and, uh, that, that you have and start being linguistic and give the numbers and ROI and IRR and what kind of return they're going to get on investment from working with you, you know, et cetera, the, the actual brain of the person beginning to listen to you isn't hearing numbers and ROI and structures and value proposition and benefits. It, that initial information goes through what we call the crocodile brain, the ancient, ancient part of the brain that only thinks about when it first meets something. Is this something I should eat? Is this something I should mate with? Is this something I should kill? Right? And until you get past that physical uh, uh, infrastructure of the mind, thinking, what is this on a survival basis? Your information just gets completely truncated, edited, and boiled down. And that's why when you start explaining to somebody what it is you have, it seems like they're glossing over, you know, or their, uh, their eyes are rolling back in their head. It's their ancient part of the mind trying to understand what is this coming at me, right? And so uh, uh, we get through that part of the mind pretty quickly, but what it does is it edits down information enormously. So you might say, hey, we offer a 29% savings on electricity over all other forms of electricity you know, electrical measuring uh, devices and gateways. And the, the brain that begins listening to you can't absorb the value of that until it understands of what threat level you are, what you really are. And then it shifts, it, it passes you on to a, the midbrain. The midbrain is the social part of the brain, right? And until the mind of the person listening to you understands what your social status is, high, low, medium. You're the mayor of the city. You're the president of uh, the association that can buy. You're the janitor. You're a salesperson. You're an executive. Until they understand what your social status is, the mind of the other person hasn't decided how much time and the attention to pay to you. And only after all this processing is done to get it to the neocortex. The neocortex is the part of the brain that can understand what it is you have. It is smart, it is linguistic, it is mathematical, it is capable. And until you get permission by these other controlling centers of the brain to get into the neocortex, the person listening cannot think about what it is you have. So I'll give you an example. There is a rule that the neocortex has or the other parts of the brain, and it says, do not send me any problems that I have solved before. Do not send me any problems that you need immediate response to. Do not send me problems that are urgent. I think slowly, I think carefully, I like to problem solve, and the neocortex does not like to solve problems twice. So, so why am I saying this? Because if your pitch looks familiar it looks like the other comp- competition pitch. It, it, it looks like a solution that the buyer um, or the investor already has seen. The neocortex, the part of the mind you're trying to reach, goes, don't send me this problem. I've already solved it. I told you the rest of the brain what the solution is, uh, and I don't want to see it again. That's when you feel somebody not listening to you. It's the neocortex going, I'm saving my energy for a different kind of problem. So, so. That, these are some of the things of how the brain processes information, uh, and you have to beg, and you, 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 have to, you have to really cajole the mind of the other person to get into 
their neocortex where they can think about what it is you're actually offering. So if your offering isn't visual, if it's not novel, right, if it's not fast-generated, um, if it's not new information and intriguing, it just doesn't get to the brain, the part of the brain of the other person where they can make any kind of decision. So anyway, that's you know, how we start to think about the, the structure of the brain processing your pitch. So, Oren, you've been telling me all the, all the time that I spend in the beginning of a meeting, that 15, 20 minutes doing small talk, trying to convince the person that I'm a really, really good guy and I'm a good steward of their cash, that, that, that probably was uh, not a good investment of time? Yeah, so, Brian, I mean, I think about that a, a little bit differently. I mean, w- there's no argument among business people, anybody who's been in business for a couple of years, again, you know, from bankers, venture capitalists, academics, uh, scientists, you know, the span of human attention is 20 minutes. That's it. And when they measure this stuff, it falls off a cliff. Somebody actually listening to what you're saying. So if you walk into a meeting, right, and you're talking about um, sports and the, the awesome basketball game that was last night and, you know, this, all these kinds of things, then um, you are using up valuable time that could be spent convincing somebody to take interest in what you have. And so you're sort of you're doing softball conversation to get them to like you. But nobody buys what you have because they like you, right? They buy because they want it. Uh, you know, in today's world, you just can get so much information on the Internet. Maybe you see in, in past times somebody would buy something from you because they liked you. But in today's world, they don't go, listen, we think it's too expensive. We're not sure we're going to get the results we're looking for, but, man, I really like Brennan. Let's just buy it. You know, so what? It's a couple million dollars. He's a good guy. That's not how decisions are made today. So, so getting somebody to like you uh, is, can happen very quickly, but it's not worth 5, 10, 3, 8, 11 minutes. So, so you, you, you guys have studied, you studied the brain, and then you uh, came up with, uh, with, uh, with uh, the strong method to uh, maybe talk about uh, how, you, how you came up with the strong method and, and kind of tell us about it. Yeah, sure. And I think if you go to, uh, if, if anybody's interested in digging in this deeper, if you go to pitchanything.com slash V as in Victor 6, V, v for victory 6, pitchanything.com slash V6. So you can see there we put together, I put together a little sort of mini course on how to produce a short six-minute pitch that goes through all these modular ways of getting into the human mind effectively. And so I call it strong. Uh, You know, that's simply set the frame, tell the story, reveal intrigue, offer a prize, nail a hook point, and get the deal. And those are phases that you have to go through in order to get somebody to buy what it is you have, right? And so, you you know, S in strong is for set the frame. Uh, What we see in most presentations is the presenter starts out with information, right? Uh, and, and when you give a buyer information, you're allowing him to frame the issues in his own mind. So we, you know, rather, I mean, we're in a political cycle now, right? And so you're going to see all this conversation about framing. Um, in Hollywood, when they build a movie or a TV show, if you look at something like you know Game of Thrones or you look at um, The Walking Dead, they lead you in a direction to believe one thing that is establishing the frame, right? So then they can change that frame very quickly, shock you, and hold your interest. Pitch is a little bit different. We don't want to shock people. But we put a frame around the information so they can see what it is we have in the same way 
we, you know, we deal with whatever. I mean, we get, Brandon, give me an example of something that, you know, someone, um, one of your listeners might be, uh, might be pitching. Um, uh, you know, I, let me give you, a, you know, evolution, probably our biggest hole is that, you know, we pitch kind of investing in smaller businesses. So I mean, I'll kind of throw it at what, what, you know, and, and we, and it's probably the worst thing that we are, we are, we do in, uh, is you know walking into typically the institutional players and explain our market. So our you know are these investing in very small companies. Sure. Uh, so a a investor in a small company already has a frame of why this is a difficult space to be successful in, mm-hmm. right? And you have a frame which says when you look at all the data and the information and the people and the you know exigencies around the deal, you go. It's a good deal. They look at the same information and they go, it's a tough deal, right? These two frames are incompatible. So when you come together for a negotiation or a meeting, one frame is stronger than the other. And the strongest frame will dominate and win. So if their frame is these are risky deals which are too hard to invest in and too hard to make money, right, then they're going to come out with a no. If your frame is stronger, which is these are good deals, uh, you get rewarded for the risk, and you have lots of control, and you can make your money back better than other kinds of investments, then your frame is stronger, and you get a yes. Right? And so now you start to see, um, so, so your job is to then come in and reframe what they believe about your deal small deals are, um, you know, don't have the infrastructure, they don't have the legal, they don't have the oversight, they don't have the corporate governance, and they, they're thinly capitalized, you have to reframe that as positives. Right? So now you start to see why setting the frame is so important. So, right, so you might come in and say, unlike uh, a $50 million company, this is a, you know, what, what size company are you talking about? A uh, typical revenue of three to seven million, making probably okay. half a million to a million and a half of free cash flow. Got it. So this is a five million dollar deal, unlike a fifty million dollar deal, right? There's some tremendous benefits here, right? If we grow two million dollars, we've sort of had a a um, increase the revenue almost fifty percent, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I like it. The the, com- the com- competitors, right, are all fighting on national TV, and there's lots of low-hanging fruit that they don't care about because they're fighting about huge contracts. And we can operate without um, without interference from you know whatever it's Microsoft and Oracle, right? Because they're trying to get the five million dollar contracts, all the five hundred thousand dollars stuff. We can sweep up. It's a tremendous advantage for us. And the cap table on a $5 million company, is the founder, one other investor. Clean cap table, easy to invest, and more importantly, much easier to set brand and strategy because it's not something that has had a $50 million advertising campaign. As hundreds, right? So there's some tremendous value in these small uh, you know, $5 million companies that make them easier to get into, easier to grow, and easier to get returns on than something that's larger. And for these reasons... We love them. Uh, so it, it, it's taking the, uh, you know, the core issues, making a $50 million, you know, $25 million similar kind of company look frustrating and difficult and framing ourselves as easy or easier and better. 
I like it. And I like the way you said it too, because usually we get to that at the end. And like you said, they're, you know, they've kind of passed out and moved on. So, uh, that's yeah, a, so that's a, uh, it's a good point. Well, I think, you know, you have an advantage. So when you know what the problems are going in and I see so many entrepreneurs, you're missing this point is hit the skepticism. You know, you're going to have at the head, at the end up front, right? Today, investing in a three to seven million dollar company for most institutional investors would be um, is, is is probably outside their mandate. They probably would get resistance from the board of directors and it's just viewed as difficult to write that size check. However, today things have changed and that kind of thinking is gonna is causing of family offices and institutions to miss out on the next $100 billion of small trades. I'll tell you why. Right? It is not like it was five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, where these companies were difficult to monitor. It was difficult to um, have financial controls. Right? And by the time you learn something that was wrong, it's too late. Today, you, because of the steady stream of data coming out of these companies, you can see within five days if a small company uh, is starting to you know, get even one or two degrees off of its you know, financial mission, and you can step in and make that correction. And for people who recognize that this is uh, uh, you know, a capability and a trend, there's going to be $5 billion of value shifting into the funds that recognize um, that this is happening today. I'll give you an example, right? So, so that's a way um, that you can hit the skepticism right up front without waiting for that question to hit you at the end of the presentation when you know everybody's tired. So, Orin, I'm right. I've written all this down, but I have to go back and listen to this, yeah. this show again to get all that down. But, but you know, when I hear you talk, I, I have to chuckle. And for the listeners out there. You know, uh, what my partner Jeff and I, we frequently, uh, you know, we have not been good fundraisers. But one thing we are very good at, uh, you know, I think, uh, is pitching the entrepreneurs. Because our, our pitch to the entrepreneurs is very, very succinct. It's We've got kind of a product. We kind of hit them with it. And we just kind of, you know, and, and we say, we you know, we can only do, you know, kind of two, three deals a year. And, you know, we're, and, and so it's, it's you know, when I was listening to your book, i Full disclosure, I listen. I can't actually read a book, but um, I, 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 I saw the the things that we do well in pitching entrepreneurs and the things we did horribly, which is in pitching the you know the kind of the, the more institutional investors. And I had to chuckle because it was like, you know, we by default had followed more of your process, not probably the entire thing, on the entrepreneur side, and none of it on the investor side. So it was uh, it was <laughs> it was entertaining <laughs> to li- to listen to. Wow. What are some of the mistakes you feel you made on the institutional side you know I, I i mean i think a lot of the things that you just outlined there were were perfect i mean you know we we invest in these very very small businesses and they all see this massive risk when you know we're buying in it you know kind of the valuations are are less than four times we're not using leverage um you know that that you know we tend to not have zeros you know where some of these you know the ventures are the big, big ones and, and so um you know, we have been unable to get that risk, uh, the, the vision, their, 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 their vision or their, their kind of how they see these small businesses versus how we see them. And, um, you know, I mean, we've literally talked to uh, actually somebody that's actually an investor in Fund 3, uh, uh, Fund of Funds, who when in the beginning when we were talking to them about a 3 or $4 million business, 
the you know the analyst was like, well, obviously all these businesses have been created in the last year or so because there's no way they would have made it through 08 and 09 without going bankrupt. We're like, no, they've they were around for, for <laughs> they've been around for a long time, and we literally sent them the tax returns showing that they actually paid taxes in those years, and the people are like, that's still I'm, I'm not buying it, I'm not believing it. So it's we we really haven't hit that very well at all. So yeah, so I mean, if you think about and for people listening, if you think about process. Right, a process for, you know, how do I prepare to go in and give a pitch? For me, I mean, we're start, starting to touch on some things. Is one is we have to, you can call it hit skepticism. I would call it reframe their current point of view to a different point of view. Because if they continue to have the point of view they have, you're going to be, you know, trying to just overcome objections at yep. the end of the presentation. Right? So... Think about it like this. You want people to, rather than pitch them what you have and tell them the value proposition, the benefits, the features, you just, in the first few minutes, want them in your swim lane. People start up that meeting or that phone call thinking about their own stuff and junk, their own problems, where they're going to take vacation, they're having, um, you know, they're having a disagreement with the partner, they're getting sued, they're suing somebody, there was a workplace accident, there's a million things to be worried about, right? They paid a contractor, the contractor didn't do what he was supposed to, now they're, just everybody has their problems, right? So, so they come to that meeting thinking about their problems, and if you just go in and start describing your features and benefits, they're going to transmute their frustrations and their problems having to being critical of what you have. And what you just want is some, you want them in your swim lane, and by that, you're going to give them a big idea to wrap their heads around. Today, you know, just in, in your example, um, of the capital that's going into uh, private companies, about Thirty billion of it is from venture capital, which represents maybe fifteen or eighteen percent of the money going into private companies. The rest of it is from angels or small or family offices. So, while there's thirty billion dollars of venture capital, there's one hundred fifty two hundred billion of angel and uh, uh, family office money, and that money is getting a consistent 30% IRR, you know, 30% return. Venture capital is getting a consistent 12%, right? And the reason is because the private money and individual money is going into um, slower-moving, smaller-scale deals. Today, if you're interested in 12% yield venture capital, you know, or hard money is a business you should be in. But if you're really looking at cracking the nut at 30%, 40% return, three to $5 million companies is the growth uh, area. So we're not saying what we do. Yeah. We're not saying we do anything better than anybody else. We're just pointing out, and I, you know, something that's happening in the structure of the economy, you know, the support. So it's high stakes. It's interesting. Um, it's value-based. And we're talking about something that um, we're talking for a few minutes, maybe two minutes, about something that's not ourselves. And that makes somebody comfortable. It gets them in your swim lane. It gets them calm down, you know, whatever it is. So if you sell, uh, you know, you know th- these are highly abstract, complex topics. But if you just sell, you know, truck tires, right, um, you could say, hey, you know, in the past, 
if you bought a truck tire, you wanted a name on it like Goodyear. Because, or you want a name on it like Firestone. And that tire would be made in Michigan. Or that tire would be made in, um, uh, you know, some Rust Belt state. And that was good because you wanted quality, you didn't want it to blow out. But what's interesting is the state of manufacturing today and the state of technology, right, the best tires in the world are made in Malaysia at the Dung Howe factory. You know, why is that and how is that possible? This presentation is about how manufacturing quality uh, has changed such that for some items, they're not of national security, they aren't digital in nature, you may actually be doing yourself, the economy, and your company a better job by outsourcing uh, to, you know, another. So, so anyway, it, it's an idea, right, that is new, novel, high stakes, and interesting get somebody in your swim lane. You're not trying to sell them anything at this point. You're trying to get them invigorated, focusing on what you have so you can uh, uh, explore with them the, you know, the, the, what is interesting, intriguing, and curious about you know, your company, yourself, and your products. Warren, I got to tell you too, when I was reading your book and you uh, talked about how you run into the analyst frame when you first kind of go in, uh, Jeff and I had made some mistakes in, in our presentations. We try to get the presentation down to like, you know, I don't know, seven, eight, ten pages or something. And we, so we decided to lead with our returns. And so, you know, just to say, look, you know, we're, we're, getting, the, we're getting the 30 plus percent IRRs. We are getting the 3x times capital, you know, that sort of thing. And the analyst, the, uh, the analyst frame was like, they, they just started, we couldn't get beyond that. We would get stuck in the whole, you know, they, would, they, would, they literally would, they would stop listening to the rest of the presentation and start asking a bunch of questions about that. So I was chuckling for, you know, during your example in the book. So uh, it was for those readers, yeah, yeah. So uh, got to listen to the lead book. Off, right. So you think you lead off with your best elements, right? <laughs> Where you go, hey, it's, it's unbelievable, right? This pencil draws a line unbroken, five miles long. That might be the best thing you have about your product, right? This tire can go 100,000 miles without losing any structural integrity. We get a 35% IRR uh, um, in, in the last 20 of 20 investments. Where you, you rate your senses, the, hey, my uh, pitch anything is a book that is required reading. 50 of the top 75 investment banks, right? So you, you, your sense is you lead off with your best foot because you want to impress people, but it immediately puts them in the analyst frame. And people go, huh, here's a puzzle I need to solve. Somebody is telling me something that is uh, outside the norm. It's outside my belief system. If I believe it, it will benefit them. It's probably going to cost me money. Challenge accepted. I'm going to go figure this out if this is true or not true, right? And, and so that's what you trigger when you lead with your best stuff first. That's why you want to, until somebody understands what's at stake here, the ideas underneath um, what it is you have and why this topic is curious and interesting and intriguing, until somebody believes that what you do, um, the way you solve it is, is difficult, but you still are able to do it, and other people don't have the same skill or technology as you do, they're not going to put a, ascribe any value to your IRR, your product features, that you do it better than anyone else. There's a process to get somebody to tell them what your benefit is. 
Right? If you just lead off with the benefit, you're going to trigger skepticism. They people go, hmm, they immediately pull out their phone, start research. Right? So I think about a sales presentation. Sales pre- presentations that I see, and I see thousands, because we, we, I'm on all kinds of shows, and people call in, and you know, we, we have a product to pitch anything. We see thousands of presentations. They always start out with, hey, we have a ball bearing. The ball bearing is coated with Kevlar. That means it can spin... Uh, three times faster than normal kind of ball bearing, and, and it has a reduced heat. Right? That's the feature. That means when you run your equipment, uh, you have much more visibility on the failure rates, and you're less likely to have a piece of equipment fail in the middle of a critical manufacturing run. Great. I understand the features. I understand the benefits. But the meeting is over. All I want to know is how much is it. And then I want the meeting to end so I can go research it on the Internet and see if there's a cheaper one or what, if what you told me is true. Right? So it's not that those kinds of sales pitches are wrong. It's that those are five-minute meetings. You might be in the room for an hour, but they're done as soon as you have the features and benefits are. Right? And, and that's not the kind of meeting you want to be in. You want to be in a meeting with somebody who really understands the strength of your firm, the integrity of what you and what you have, and all those kinds of things. So... Um, that's why you want to get somebody into a process, get them in your swim lane, understand that, you know, what the big idea is, what the stakes are, you know, again, uh, get them curious about your differentiation. And then once they're really believing in you and you raise your status, uh, and I think, you know, maybe that's the, the last topic we deal with today is status. So the reason that buyers and investors don't listen to you for a very long time and they sort of are difficult to convince is because in their mind, you are a low-status salesperson. You are a low-status entrepreneur. You are a low-status pitchman. They have the money, they have the contract, and they have the power. And over thousands and hundreds of meetings and presentations, they've learned that salespeople and entrepreneur have to beg for the money, and the investor or the buyer has the power and the high status, and that you as the um, seller or the pitchman, have low status. And it just happens to work out in human societies. We don't pay much attention or give much value to people of a lower status than ourselves. So it's not about convincing someone about the features that you have or the benefits. It's raising your status to theirs or above theirs so they'll listen to you for as long as it takes to convince them of the features, if that makes sense. So, Brendan, does that trigger any sort of thoughts or ideas in your mind? Oh. No, I can definitely, I, I literally was given a pitch in Chicago. Some people that we knew very well were high recommended. And I remember walking in and got the, again, kind of going back to your book, um, you know, the whole, hey, talk to my analyst for a while. And I did. <laughs> I sat there and talked to him for a while and the guy came in and, and uh, you know, it's just one of those pitches that just has drug on forever. You know, it's one of those. And I just yeah, was laughing so and I'm kind of going, holy crap. I mean, I, when I was running, listening to your book and I'm going, shit, did that too. <laughs> Yeah, so, so listen, there's a quick fix for that once you understand, right? So if you read Pitch Anything and you see, I think, you know, Chapter 3 is 100% about status, lots of examples. But if I put my Pitch Anything hat on and somebody comes in and says, hey, I'd like to introduce you to my analyst. You know, why don't you sit down with my analyst and explain what you have? And say, you say, oh, okay, well, look, a better idea is I'll get my analyst and he can talk to your analyst. Right? That way the two analysts can talk to each other. But I came here to talk to the managing director. I came here to talk to the, um, uh, you know, the fund manager. Because the CEO of a company 
talks to the managing director. The CFO talks to the financial officer at the fund. The um, chief operating officer uh, at the company talks to you know probably the operating guy at the fund, and the analysts talk to the analyst. If you have the analyst talking to the CEO, something's wrong, right? That's not how it, it works. What, what that is is it lowers the status of the CEO. CEOs talk to CEOs. CFOs talk to CFOs. COOs talk to COOs. And yeah, you have a little bit of line blending there, right? But for sure, when you have an analyst talking to a CEO, something is wrong with the structure, and it needs to be undone. Maybe talk a little bit about, you know, you, you talk about in the book about being willing to walk away. Maybe talk about how you kind of, that, that concept came to you. And obviously, I think I just figured that out. But maybe talk about, you know, some stories about how you've done that. Because that takes, uh, that takes you know, your conviction, right, to, to be in that spot yeah, to say, I'm, so, I'm not willing to do it. Well, I think negotiation 101 is, hey, I'm willing to walk away if I don't get the terms, and, you know, that puts you in the stronger position. The problem is when you're selling, you know, how do you walk away from a sale <laughs> when you're right. trying to make it, right? Well, I mean, I think what I've learned over time is people want what they can't have. People chase that which moves away from them, and people only value that which they pay for. People want what they can't have, chase that which moves away from them, and value what they pay for. So as you're selling, you start to raise your status and indicate that you're willing to walk away early on and often, then you don't have to do it dramatically at the end. I think everybody knows you have to show some willingness to walk away, right? But if you, at the, at the end of a sale or at the end of the pitch or, you know, at the end of a set of meetings, go, listen, uh, if we don't get to terms, you know, we don't get a, a $12 million valuation, $2 million dollars, with a one-time liquidation preference, you know, whatever the investment terms are, if we don't get a, uh, you know, if you're buying a car, right, if we don't get a uh, 5% interest rate for the seven-year loan and the price of $75,000, then we're walking away. It doesn't really have merit because it's the first time. It's, it's very dramatic. It's the first time that you're raising that, right? But if along the way you raise your status, by, you know, one way to indicate that you're willing to walk away is just say, hey, we're very busy. It's good to meet you here today. I'm excited to compare notes on what we have, what you guys invest in. Okay. Um, however, you're busy and we're busy. I'll spend 20 minutes describing what we have, the company, everything like that, right? And then I'll let you uh, get some time. I'll give you know. I'll let you have some time. I'll give you some time to compare how you invest, given what we have, and if it makes sense. Maybe we'll decide to move forward together, right? That's an indication that you're willing to walk away that is professional. It is, uh, works well within a sort of an investment environment, but it's very clearly stating really in the first few minutes that you're willing to walk away. So, so the willingness to walk away is not about some kind of grandstand at the end. It's communicating subtly that I'm looking for a good partner. I'm looking for a good buyer of my products and services, and if I don't find him, on the other side or her on the other side, then I got to go spend my time logically somewhere else. No, I love, I love it. I, uh, it, it's funny because a lot of the things that you're talking about from a, you know, like when I think, when I hear you talking, I'm thinking of it from a fundraising side 
And then, but what if I put the other hat on and talk about pitching entrepreneurs? I think we do that pretty well. You know, I, I think that, you know, the, 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 you know, the, you know, we haven't done it, you know, perfectly, obviously, um, we'll work, we'll work on it, but I, you just, we, we've got a much better succinct focused, you know, kind of, this is what we're, this is what we're about story. And it, and by definition, it does better than, you know, that, that piece of the business is, uh, we, we, you know, we've got, we've got figured out a little better than the other one. Hey, I, I realize, yeah, um, we're running a little, little bit of time, but maybe talk about the, the six, you know, kind of flaws or some of the flaws in pitching, because I think, you know, for most entrepreneurs, we tend to focus our audiences of smaller, smaller business owners. You know, when, when I went through, when I kind of listened to you talk about those, they, you know, they all resonated with me. Sure. Yeah. But why don't we wrap up uh, on this as well? I see the time. Sure. Time flies when you're having fun. So I think some of the flaws are relying on information to convince. If you are, if you are trying to give the buyer information and letting the uh, the, the specifications, um, the statistics about your product, uh, the sell sheets, the ROI, you know, all the kind of things, the, the features, if you're relying on information to sell, it's unlikely they will, even if your product is far superior. Uh, so that is one clear, you know, pitching flaw that I see. Uh, you know, when I think about new and updated ones from the book, starting without a big idea, to me, is a pitching flaw. What are big ideas? Listen to NPR. They start their uh, national public radio, you know, love them or hate them, they start their news articles off, you know, about things that are quite informational, the price of coffee, the spread of Zika, um, the change in the, uh, the, you know, the Fed open rate window rate, right? They start them off as ideas and narratives, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, for, for, uh, you know, the price of coffee, they might start off and saying, Hey, I'm here at the edge of the Okavango swamp in deepest Africa, and I don't see any villagers doing any work today, right? Uh, you, you know, whatever it is, they, they start with a narrative at the source as opposed to the price of coffee went up 22% in the last 90 days and expected to go up another 10%, you know, in the next 90. This is affecting Starbucks's, uh, um, it, you know, net income on a, qu- a quarterly basis. So starting with an idea not relying on information, uh, so relying on information to sell, starting without an idea, are two very common pitching flaws that, um, you know, we see. Um, starting from the low status position and saying, thank you, I really appreciate the time, uh, and letting us come here today or letting us get on the phone or giving us the time to present to you. That is a pitching flaw number one. It is the low, uh-oh. <laughs> Pitching flaw number 75 is somebody pulling up uh, in front of your building and letting their alarm go off. I will tell my security guard to go find that guy and uh, hey, Orrin, how do you get over out. how do you get over the low st- I mean like when you when you meet somebody and you know like at the beginning of our of our discussion obviously I'm, I am grateful that you you dialed in how do you when you start is tell me how you would start a, a pitch you know you you know like you said you flew in like on one of the videos you flew to London or you're in London and you know so it's yeah. instead of saying th- thank you how do you how do you start that so uh, well i think what you do is you you step one is you don't buy in right to their status and you you just say it's good to meet with you guys Okay. We're busy. You're busy. Finally, we found the time to get together. 
I don't like it. Let's yeah. press forward, right? Let me set a quick agenda here. Now you're setting the agenda, right, in a professional way. Let me take the lead here. I know you guys have done amazing things over time, and we've read a lot about that on Wikipedia and everything. Let me tell you what we're doing today with our application, you know, with our investing, with our model that's current. And then we can hear from you guys and see if your thinking is also in the current mode and in line with the current technology and financial trends. You see how that immediately sets you up very positively and raises your status. No, I like it. I uh, and, and I and, and I know uh, I, I do appreciate your time, Warren, and, and I and I strongly recommend to anybody out there that uh, that is really kind of thinking through, you know, especially I, you know I view things through the small business mindset and making big changes in the small business, and uh, you know, Orange really thought through a lot of this a lot of this stuff, and has really made um, uh, my team and I think about some of the things we're doing right and some of the things we're doing wrong. So uh, and uh, and hopefully we'll make some 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 big uh, some big improvements. Warren, I, I thank you so much for for dialing in, and uh, I uh, um, I will when you sign off, I'll I'll share, but uh, you know your contact information. But you can uh, find out more information at www.pitchanything.com, and you can follow Warren and at uh, on Twitter at, at @pitchanything. And uh, as he mentioned earlier. Um, at uh, pitchanything.com forward slash v6 uh, get the free five part course online and um, with that I, uh, I thank you so much for your time and Orrin if you're ever in Cleveland Ohio uh, please look us up we'll uh, be happy to to uh, show you around town well great and and Brennan I think you got from Brennan uh, I, I would love to do that uh, send me an email directly Okay. Right? So, uh, you know, I'd love to make that contact and just learn a little bit more about where you're putting money. And I'm sure there's some overlap between what we're doing. And let's continue the connection and, um, and the conversation. Sounds great. I thank you so much again. Okay. Yeah. All right. For sure. Have a good one. And tell Jeff yeah. I said hi. I'll do it. You bet. Um, I uh, have a couple minutes here to kind of provide some, uh, some color. Uh, the uh, Oren is a he is an investment banker, uh, business media personality, and best-selling author. He's the founder of Intersectional Capital. You can, uh, and as we mentioned earlier, the creator of uh, Pitch Anything, a sales and finance method used by many of the Fortune 500, uh, by Wall Street bankers, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs. Um, over the past 15 years, Oren has used his one-of-a-kind method to raise more than $1 billion for intersection capital clients and has helped countless others raise money and close deals. Uh, the, his 2011 book we mentioned earlier was published by McGraw-Hill, uh, Pitch Anything, an Innovative Method for Presenting, Persuading, and Winning the Deal. Um, it has uh, topped the charts, titles, and dominated Amazon sales and rankings for years. In addition to the corporate training for the Fortune 500 and Global 2000, Oren supports entrepreneurs at all stages of development through his website we mentioned earlier, pitchanything.com. His online courses uh, have helped thousands. My uh, or uh, Barbara Hernandez in our office has actually uh, signed up for it and 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 uh, done it. I believe she's complete. It's over a period of uh, I think four or five days. I did it today, so. Uh, I'll kind of keep you posted on how all that goes. It is a book I've I've enjoyed. You can kind of go back and you know some of the the he mentioned uh, the some of the flaws, kind of the bullet points or the six flaws for uh, pitching uh, deals is talking too much, which I always subscribe to. Uh, being vague or fu- or in fuzzy, um, 
the uh, being too needy, which uh, I think a lot of entrepreneurs that need a deal or need uh, a big client would fall into that. Going too slow, uh, too uh, uh, similar to other pitches, and no frame uh, to provide context. And then also in the book, it's some wonderful talk about the different sorts of frames that people use and how to kind of break those. Um, and uh, uh, so, you know, he goes through the various time, you know, time frame, a power frame. And these are different, different types of, the, you know, the way people come at you and kind of make some um, impacts uh, on, on your presentation. The needy frame, we mentioned earlier, the analyst frame, somebody that kind of keeps asking questions about things you say and kind of ways to get around that. And I got to tell you, when, when I was listening to the book, I was uh, – I remember um, one of the, the very, very first deals I did and a, uh, a, uh, a you know, a fantastic negotiator, a guy named John Power. And John uh, probably would never be listening to this, but I'll send it to him anyways. Uh, in the way that he worked, some of the, the magic that Oren talks about in his books about, you know, kind of talking about stories and ways to kind of get them off of that thing to get back to your story um, in, um, in your pitch. Uh, the intrigue frame, the moral authority frame, money frame, expert frame, and value frame. Honestly, uh, it's it's uh, it's worth a read. We 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 enjoyed it. Um, from the evolution perspective, uh, we uh, you can always uh, find us at uh, at evolution underscore cp on Twitter. Um, you can um, always join the discussion at hashtag the second stage t h e two n d s t a g e. Or email us at the second stage at evolutioncp.com. Um, as always, you can go and listen to, download and listen to this episode as well as many others on Voice America business channels, um, the uh, voiceamerica.com. Um, and uh, type in the, um, um, and, and uh, we always encourage any, everyone and everyone to kind of participate in our discussions. And then uh, also uh, can't leave without asking or, or thanking our sponsors, RSM LLP, formerly McGladry, the leading provider of assurance tax consulting services focused on small and mid-sized businesses nationwide with more than 6,700 people in 75 cities. Uh, so with that, I uh, uh, would like to thank you so much for dialing into the second stage. And as we always like to end it with, passion for possibilities. Thank you much for dialing in. Thank you for tuning in this week to The Second Stage. Please join Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson again next Monday afternoon at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And have a successful week. 